on day one of the Shopify store, like we had $100,000 in revenue on just the first day. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what factors led to their success of their $900,000 Kickstarter campaign, what are the critical steps to take after your crowdfunding campaign ends, and why your SEO efforts should be focused on ranking high for Google image search results. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify Ping. It's a free live chat app for Android or iOS devices and it even works on iPads. Did you know that shoppers who use live chats are almost three times more likely to complete their purchase? With Shopify Ping, you can share products, exclusive discount codes, and help customers make purchases instantly. For more information, visit shopify.com chat. Today I'm joined by Dan Blacklock from Boxthrone. Boxthrone is the world's first made-for-board-games shelving system and was started in 2017 in Basa, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you saw a problem with the way traditional board games are stored. So what was the problem that you saw? Uh, yeah, like basically, uh, board games is, is a massive, fast-growing niche industry hobby, right? Like so many people are, are playing them, and basically there isn't a way for people to store them very well. Like most people are kind of storing them on like crappy Ikea furniture or uh, like even just shoving them in their closets. Like I know people who just kind of keep them in a pile in their basement. And so I, I was one of those people, and I was looking for like a shelving solution, and then uh, I couldn't really find something I wanted. Um, like basically like board games are super expensive, right? It's almost like an investment. So you don't want to like stack them too high on top of each other and you'll risk damaging them. Uh, you want them to be easy to take off the shelf and all that kind of stuff. And you want to store them like, like flat as well. So when you store them sideways, all the pieces and stuff like fall down. And so most of the shelving solutions right now other than box their own, have you storing your board games like on their sides, right? Um, and so I basically just saw that and I was just like, Oh, I'm going to make a, a, a better shelf than all of these. Uh, and so, yeah, so we did it. So, like, you store all your board games flat. There's one game on every shelf. Uh, and it's fully expandable and modular. So it was, as your collection grows, you just add on to it. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely feel the pain. I don't have too many board games, but they're usually just, like, sh- shoved and stuffed into one of my cabinets. So I definitely <laughs> understand the, the problem use case that you're talking about. So did you have experience starting businesses or creating products in the past before before uh, before the box I mean, not really. Like, I dabbled a bit in drop shipping. Like, I had like a, a dog clothes store, like just to mess around. I tried mm-hmm. some branding stuff for that, but it didn't really take off. So, yeah, not not really. Honestly, it was my first dip into it, so it was kind of surprising how well it went. Yeah, that's funny because I think that um, you follow the path that a lot of people follow when they get started with drop shipping or selling, you know, dog products or clothing or some kind of merchandise. And uh, but then you start venturing into creating your own products. What what made you feel like? Um, I guess why box why, why why was box thrown the one that led to most success? Do you do you notice anything about what you did differently about the market that allowed you to have success with box thrown versus your previous attempts at uh, starting a business? Yeah, I mean, like it kind of taps into like Malcolm Gladwell's outliers a little bit. Like I feel like it was just this combination of like the right timing, the right place, the right platform. Uh, me specifically with my experience in board games as well. Like, like I launched this in uh, like November 2017, the Kickstarter, um, and uh, I'd only really gone to board games I think like six months before that. And so I was getting really interested in it, looking for accessories and how can I like how can I become more of an expert in the hobby um, at that time. And then at the same time, like Kickstarter board games are just like we're just starting to take off. Like you could you could at the time you could have launched any kind of Kickstarter board game product and done and done quite well for yourself. Mm. So it's a combination of like all those things, uh, as well as I have a pretty strong marketing background as well. I love, uh, I, I love nerdy stuff, right? So like I've created this like awesome kind of medieval themed brand that I think like taps into a lot of, uh, like the target audience's interests. And I feel like all those things together just kind of fired up this, kiln of success you know it's kind of a cheesy thing to say but <laughs> yeah i mean i think looking back on it, it makes a lot of sense all of these things combined to contribute to your your success is that possible to i guess replicate like if you were to give advice to someone else out there that maybe has started a drop shipping store maybe has started a merchandise store and, and hasn't maybe got a little bit of traction but couldn't scale couldn't see the future 
uh, in business with that business? Like, how can they either course correct or look at things differently? You know, again, based on the experience that you've had, so that they can you know line up future success stories. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Uh, it's just all about like, like understanding where trends are going. Uh, I think first of all, you should be in a business that you're interested in. You shouldn't be just chasing money. If you don't know anything about the business, don't even bother because you're never going to be passionate enough to take it to the next level, right? Um, and at the same time, you have to be looking to where like the money is going. Like, have you come across anything that's surprisingly successful? And you're like, whoa. Like, I'm kind of interested in this. Like, I wonder if I can do anything in this space. Uh, it absolutely is. Like, whether that's, you know, like just travel or like pet products or like board game stuff. Um, I don't know what the next big thing is, but it's all about getting in on that trend when it's kind of like before, like just before it peaks. And I feel like if you, if you hit that, uh, you, you, your business will blow up and take you places. Makes sense. Yeah, sometimes it has a lot to do more with the market and the sentiment of the market. Not so sometimes not so much even. I mean, I'm sure your product is, is a great product, but a lot of times you do need the kind of tide to help you out as well. Now, you said that you should be focusing on a, on an industry, on a product that you're passionate about. And what's interesting about your case was that this was, you said you're only into board games for six months. So you don't need to necessarily have a ton of experience or expertise or even exposure to the industry. You just need to have that passion. Is that is that what your experience has shown? Yeah, like, I mean, it depends, right? Like, I feel like it's almost like a personality fit as well. Like, I was I was actually playing, like, like tabletop games like when i was like six right like my brother and i would play like warhammer 40,000 and stuff like that and like dungeons and dragons when i was a teenager so it was kind of like dabbling in it a little bit but i wasn't like i didn't have like a regular board game group or anything like that right i didn't get i didn't i wasn't researching board games and uh just just involving myself in the space like going on forums and stuff like that mm-hmm. so it helps to be kind of like one of those people who would be suited to that industry you know like say you're kind of like an outdoorsy person but you've never taken your interest in travel to the next level um so i think it definitely helps to be sort of set up to be successful successful in that space whether you have like similar interests or just like like a personality fit um Mm -hmm. but but yeah in terms of like just diving in and just going like just ape on it like yeah like you can go from zero to 106 months, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can imagine having someone that is not, uh, I guess, so involved in industry gives you kind of fresh eyes too, to not just accept the way things are. Right? It sounds like board games have been around forever, but there's never been a solution the, like the one you came up with. So I'm assuming most people just kind of made do with with the with what they had. But I think coming with fresh eyes is definitely something that can be underrated, you know, coming at it uh, for someone that is not necessarily like jaded by the existing products already. So I think that that is certainly, uh, um, you know, beneficial in a lot of ways. That's exactly it. Like with board games in particular, like people had become so like stuck in their ways. Like they're like, oh, like this, this is the board game shelf. And it was referring to like the, uh, the Calax from Ikea, like that cube shelf and so like that became kind of like a, a, a standard and if you said anything like hey look there's other things we can do like the community would just i don't know they would just go for your throat like it was it was scary times when i first started this product we can talk about that later though yeah definitely want to go into the the how to 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 i guess communicate the benefits of your your new way of of, of, of storing uh, products but we'll get to that in a second but i want to first talk about the kickstarter campaign because that sounds like where it all got started so when you decided to launch this on kickstarter and crowdfund it how much of this was a real thing at that point how much of a box throwing was a real thing by the time you started you know opening up a kickstarter campaign and started filling in the forms uh, yeah, so I had started prototyping about six months before that, um, like before I actually launched the campaign. Um, I guess I guess about a year before that was when I had the idea, and then within six months I had the physical prototype, and six months after that I had launched. So yeah, about about a year. So which I think is really important for for Kickstarter to actually be able to see something physical out there. So now when you started the campaign, what was the goal of the campaign, and how much did you end up raising? Uh, I mean, the campaign, like the goal, I think was only uh, like $20,000. Uh, and then the campaign, like the Kickstarter campaign itself raised over $900,000. And then afterwards, we did kind of like a secondary crowdfunding campaign, uh, which raised uh, another couple hundred thousand dollars, basically brought the total to about $1.2 million in total. That's awesome. Tell us more about that. What was the secondary campaign? So I think a lot of people think, okay, Kickstarter, 
campaign starts, campaign ends, and that's it. Then you kind of go into the bunker and then try to build a business from there. But you did another campaign after that. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, there's actually a lot of stuff you can do after you've done your Kickstarter. So like we uh, basically have this pledge management system called uh, CrowdOx. But you can set up your CrowdOx system so that it's also like a mini Kickstarter. So you just tell everyone like, hey, uh, this is only – you can buy the box on for another 30 days. Uh, this is the price. Like maybe it's a little bit higher than the Kickstarter. And it's almost like you can run a secondary Kickstarter like that. And now there's like lots of other options too. Like you can uh, – Indiegogo has a platform too where it's like you can run – uh, it's called an in-demand campaign. So after you finish your Kickstarter, you can flip it over to Indiegogo and have like a short campaign on there and all that kind of stuff. And, and I guess what's the difference between that first one and the secondary one? How do you – because I think a lot of times people say Kickstarter and I'd imagine there's some urgency behind trying to get in uh, within those 30 days or however long your campaign is running for to get those rewards. Now all of a sudden there's a secondary campaign. Does that – do you have to change the kind of offer, the messaging on there that – you know, that, that will continue to keep on riding on that, that buzz from people contributing to people paying attention to the campaign. Yeah. Like with the Kickstarter campaign, it's more like, um, like early adopters, right. It's people who are like wanting to take a chance on you. They're interested in it. They feel like they're part of building the product. Now secondary campaign, it's more like, uh, the people who join it are they're I mean, they're, more risk averse so you call those like late birds or late pledges and so they'll it feels like the product's already like on the way like it's already being made um in that secondary campaign so uh yeah it's not it doesn't build as much momentum right because like you don't have the big countdown timer there saying like oh there's only three days left before you know you can never buy this product again like like kickstarter does um so it's more like it's a bit e-commerce-y in the way it is so you it kind of depends on your messaging right so like in our messaging we say like oh you in our ads our facebook ads would say like this is the last chance you know this is the last week we're gonna have this campaign up and all that kind of stuff so Got it. You mentioned you use a tool, a, an app called, or a, a service called CrowdOx? Yes, CrowdOx. Yeah, it's a it's a post-campaign uh, management system. Got it. Now, how do you drive traffic from that Kickstarter, like the attention on there, over to CrowdOx? Because you mentioned you raised another couple to a few hundred thousand, which is going to require you know, a ton of traffic to, to, to see that. So how are you diverting traffic to CrowdOx? So when you finish a campaign, you can change the button at the top to say whatever you want. So we just changed that to say, uh, it's not too late to get a box on. Click here and you'll be taken through to the, our late pledge system. Uh, so a lot of the traffic, I think, were actually people who were on the fence about Box Throne and maybe forgot about it. Mm-hmm. And then later came back and like, oh, no, it's over. And so like they, they were kind of fuddled through like that. Because if you look at the stats, most of the number, most of the visitors actually just came straight from Kickstarter, not from the Facebook ads. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we were, we were featured in a few different places in media and stuff like that. So people were kind of learning about it like close to the end of the campaign when it was almost too late. Right, makes sense. Okay, so you end up raising at least on Kickstarter over nine hundred thousand dollars, and ultimately you said one point two million. Now, once those campaigns close, well, actually, how long did you run the CrowdOx campaign for? Uh, I ran the CrowdOx one for sixty days. Got it. Okay, so once that ended, what was next? What was the next step for your business? Uh, the next step was getting it made. Like so, that first uh, prototype that I made six months after having the idea. Uh, was the one that we put in all the photos and all the videos for the for the campaign. And that's all like the marketing material. That actually wasn't the final product. Like we still had to make tweaks on it. Like the the version that was in those videos was like, I think it was twice as heavy as as the final product was. Um, we basically ran into a lot of snags. Like after we designed the product and got all the money, and then we started calculating. Like, oh wait this is how much it costs to ship it. Like we'd done some pre- preliminary stuff originally, but a lot of stuff happened between uh, getting that money from Kickstarter and actually manufacturing it. Um, like we had, uh, like the, the trade war started, right? Between China and the US, pretty much right after we got that money. And so one of the things that uh, was taxed was steel, right? So the price of steel goes through the roof and our product is almost all steel. So like we had budgeted for one price and then all of a sudden we're paying like 20 to 30% more. So there's that plus uh, like freight shipping got a lot more expensive. Uh, basically everything was getting more expensive during that time. Uh, and so we had to find a way to kind of like make the system a little bit lighter. So we basically uh, we just like tweaked like certain things, the product, we actually improved it a little bit too. Like before we had like uh 
uh, almost like coded MDF for the, for the basis. And I was like, I wasn't really happy with it. Cause it, I mean, it's kind of associated with cheaper material, cheaper furniture. So uh, we went back and changed this like super high grade, uh, like ABS plastic. Like it just feels really nice. Like the way we coded it, like it's actually made by this uh, company that makes a lot of Japanese furniture. And so it's like, it's very precise in the way it's made and has like the logo emblazoned on there and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, so we had to go back and, uh, and, and make all these little changes. Uh, I've completely, I've completely found the question. No, so the, the tweaks that you, you I think this makes sense that you went into production next. Now you mentioned that you made some tweaks to the product. Were any of these that came from, because I think what I've heard from other Kickstarter campaign creators in the past is that they often get a lot of great feedback from the people that are you know, just commenting, replying to their campaign, that have contributed, that are maybe emailing them after contribution. Did you get any kind of good feedback that allowed you to make adjustments to the product from the people that backed your campaigns? Yeah, uh, the board game community is uh, very active uh, in these kind of projects. So honestly, from day one of even making the project public, we had just so much feedback in, in like every way. Um, like the second we launched like a like the preview landing page way before the campaign, um, like we were already getting comments. Like I posted it on Reddit and people were like, oh, like I would never use this because you can't put miniatures on it and so we saw that i'm like oh why don't why don't i make a, a little glass shelf that goes into this too so you can put miniatures on it and then someone's like oh i can't store you know all my dungeons and dragons stuff on this i'm like oh, okay well i'll just design a drawer real quick and so i designed a drawer for it as well um and so i kind of did that with like a few different add-on ideas with that too oh another one was like play mats you know like the the mats that you kind of will, will, will play on with some board games uh, they're made of silicone right so um, someone's like, oh, like I can't store these in this, you know, they'll fall right through the through the holes in the shelf. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I just quickly designed uh, uh, like a hanging playmat holder that would be be designed with uh, at the time it was all steel, with steel loops. Um, and then when we launched the the Kickstarter, you know, I took all those ideas and launched Kickstarter. And there was another wave of kind of like revisions for stuff. Like some people were saying that uh, maybe the extra wide shelves that I had included like we had an we have an extra wide version wasn't long enough to fit this massive board game called kingdom death monster which is like i think it's like 70 centimeters wide um and so i'm like okay so i had to quickly like as the campaign's going to go you know call the factory I'm like hey can we expand the size of this and then go back to kickstarter and tell people like hey we we the the extra wide shelves are now 20 percent longer and then I'd go back again and people would be like, oh, like, I don't think you should make the, those uh, play mats with like the steel loops and stuff like that. Like, how's it going to stand there? You're like, okay. um, so I'd go back and change like a, like a nylon straps and stuff like that, um, which and then like just going back and forth uh, with with backers in the factory. At one point, do you say you, you kind of just close the door and let's just go with these features rather than keep on? kind of expanding the scope of the products. I can, I can imagine that the feedback would keep on coming and that you could always add more and more things. But how do you know when, how did you know when it was ready to at least go on Kickstarter? Yeah, I mean, like I was new to everything, right? So I was just very much caught up in all the excitement. So I was like, how big can we make this thing? And just everything seemed possible, right? So I just kept adding stuff to it, um, which just became kind of like more of a nightmare, like during manufacturing and shipping. But uh, at one point, I was designing these like metal panels for the side. And then I realized how much it would cost to ship those and how much people would acceptably pay for them. And I'm like, uh, I think I'm going to stop designing stuff. Like, it's getting so complicated. Like, I think we had, like, 12 different – like, I have 76 different SKUs for this product. That's how modular and adaptable it is. And so I'm just like, if we had, if we had any more, like, it's going to just – it's just going to be crazy. So uh, basically, I kind of put a pin in it around uh, maybe, like, three-quarters of the way through the campaign. Okay, now the campaign obviously is super successful. You mentioned that you kind of caught the wave of uh, lots of popularity around board game specific uh, Kickstarter campaigns. But was there anything specific that you felt like you you did well that you would certainly do again if you were to launch another campaign to help ensure the success or at least help stack the odds in your favor of a successful campaign like the one that you you've been able to do? Yeah, so I am actually launching a second campaign uh, in a couple months here. Um, and it's all kind of like within the same branding. Like the, the most important thing I think that was responsible for a lot of the success was having that very engaging branding. Um, and so, uh, like for for example, uh, I the whole brand is based around this character that I made called the Box King, who's kind of like this lovable, goofy dictator. Uh, basically, is the is the king of the Box Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, and the backers are kind of like, or the customers even, like now with the Shopify store. Uh, 
are, you know, they, they are kings of their own box kingdom. So like all the communication, all the brand, the, uh, emails and stuff like that that go out to people who always say like, oh, like, your majesty, like, we have this new thing in stock or like, oh, I've just delivered, I just mm-hmm. received a raven, like, blah, 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 and just having like very much in character and in theme. So if people just like loved it. It's just, like, I, I really enjoyed building that world for people. Like I even like would show them stuff like, oh, like we're shipping the box on now. And like, I designed like a, a like a, a medieval, you know, galleon with like the box king on the front, like to make people think that, like, oh, it's this is a real world, like I'm getting involved in, right? I think yeah. people really like it. Like, we have a we have a really high open rate in our emails. I think it's like I have about fifteen thousand people on our email list, and I have almost like a fifty percent open rate. I think because of it. Wow, definitely very impressive. Yeah, so like I think that was like a big factor of it. So like I'm doing another campaign in a couple months, and I'm uh, trying to. St- I'm keeping it within that box kingdom framework, but I'm, I'm changing the theme a little bit. So instead of like the boxing being like the, the, the main dude in it, I got this box genie now and he's like a genie and he can make all your storage wishes come true. So it's, we'll see how it goes. It should be pretty exciting. That's cool. I mean, it definitely sounds like very immersive uh, branding, which I think is something that you specified as leading to not just the success of the Kickstarter campaign, but then overall success with your, your, your shop of store and your business as a whole. How do you, I guess, how do you, is this all inside your head? Or is there a way for you to kind of make sure that you're following these like, almost like branding guidelines, especially as you, you know, grow bigger and hire more people, like making sure that that branding is staying consistent? Yeah, like I used to work in communications and PR for a Berkshire Hathaway energy company. So like I am pretty, I was already like pretty well trained in like how to basically build a brand and do the brand guidelines and have people stick to it and understanding like the rules and stuff of what you can do. Um, and also like with the marketing and communications aspect of that side of, of, of the job. So like I, I did that for five years. So I was kind of knew what I had to do to make that. And so like now, yeah, it, it, it really does make a huge difference. Like you have to sit down and kind of describe what you want the brand to be. Like how do you want people to feel when they look at your posters or read your emails or see your product, like, or look at your logo even like, and everything, every, every little visual aspect of what people see affects how they feel, right? In terms of the brand, from the colors, from the words you use, from the shapes of the products, from the shapes of the pictures, um, like all those things, right? So you have to be very, very careful in what you select, right? When you when you're kind of crafting that world, um, and so so yeah, so like it's just about once you sit down and define all that, everything else just comes to you. So you know what, like once you have that framework. The words just flow out of you. The scripts come out of you. You know exactly what you want the, the videos and the, and, the, and the illustrations to look like and all this kind of stuff. Mm, makes sense. Okay, so now you mentioned that I want to jump back into the manufacturing mode when you started running to all these roadblocks. You mentioned the cost of steel went up. Your product was super heavy. What were the, the adjustments that, I guess, how long did it take you to figure out the right adjust, adjustments? How many iterations or prototypes during the manufacturing process before you were happy with a product that not only fulfilled on the promise uh, that, that you made to the customers on Kickstarter, but then also didn't, you know, eat into your profits too much? Yeah, like, so, like, like I mean, the biggest one was that we, we changed that wood into that, like, high-grade plastic. Um, and that, that said there's a lot of like weight, uh, in terms of shipping. So that helped a little bit. We made it more efficient, like in the design, like we had a lot of wasted space in the, in the columns, like they were too thick. So we made those like a little bit like thinner and then it was just a strong, like we weight tested everything. Uh, like, I guess like one of my best memories of, of making this product was like us standing in the factory with this like weight pressure machine. It was in a mold factory. So they just had tons and tons of giant chunks of heavy metal and so, so we had this shelving system set up and we just kept piling more and more chunks of metal into it to see how much weight it could take. And eventually we just ran out of things to put on it. <laughs> so we're just like, okay, I think nice. this is good. I think we've designed it to be efficient and strong and light at the same time. And so like there were a lot of other tweaks too. Like we wanted to have like a, a way to secure it to the wall properly. Uh, I wanted more of like the branding on there. So we had the logo on there and all this kind of stuff. And so it, from, from the end of the campaign, like I went to China right after the campaign closed to do this. And I was in China for a couple months and I came back and went again for a couple months uh, eventually, I just, like I live here now, I live in China now, just iterating on products and stuff like that. But but yeah, it was probably about like eight, maybe like seven months, I think, from when the campaign closed to when we had the final final product shipping. I mean, there were there were a hundred other things that that went wrong though, like in the beginning. Um, should I talk about that now, or do you want to talk about that later? Yeah, you know, we'd love to hear more about it. 
So to begin with, uh, there was the trade war stuff, right? So we got the money, uh, and then all this, like the tariffs came out, uh, which affected us, by the way. It's a steel tariff. It's a steel product. So you know we have to pay 20% more when we import it to the U.S. Um, and the price of steel itself jumped like 20 to 30%. Uh, and, then, and then the U.S. dollar appreciated against the Chinese yuan a lot, uh, which would be great. But we had signed a contract before that. So when we signed the contract with the manufacturer, it was a very strong Chinese yuan. So it was like one U.S. dollar to five Chinese yuan or maybe six Chinese yuan. And then all the trade war started and then it just dropped and it was like one to seven. So like we tried to negotiate a little bit, but like, oh, no, a contract's a contract. And I think they maybe pushed it a little bit to 6.2, but we still like getting a bit jammed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we basically got, got like a bit of a financial hit there. Uh, also, like my logistics person... Uh, so just for scale, like the size of this product is pretty big, right? Like it's going to be like six feet wide. Um, and so we had about 16 full containers worth of ships shipping around the world. So it's so many containers, so much logistics. Uh, and to begin with, our freight person overestimated the cost of it, basically gave us a bill that was like four times the amount it should have been. And I just didn't sleep for like two days straight. Like, it's like, I'm like, how are we going to do this? Like, we're going to ship in portions. I don't, we can't finance this. Like, what are we going to do? And then they came back and I'm like, oh no, it's my mistake. I miscalculated it. And it's actually wow. like a 25% of what they quoted. So I'm like, oh my God. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then I think that the biggest, the biggest blunder of them all was actually, I think with our, uh, our warehouse, our third party logistics company in the U S like, I won't name their, like, no, I won't name any names because uh, I still work with them. Like gone a lot better now, but uh, basically what happened was that we have a very, very customizable product. You can have like three blue shelves, four white shelves, two yellow shelves. Uh, and because uh, I got too excited uh, when I was doing the mm-hmm. campaign. So yeah. when people asked for multiple colors, I was like, you can have anything you want. Uh, so lesson learned there. But, uh, but at the time, I'm like, okay, we got to make this work. So we basically had to create permutations of the different products. Uh, numbers of shelves in the boxes like so we had to have like a box of two a box of four a box of five a box of six in different colors and then so if you ordered a bunch of different colors we could just ship you like you know two boxes of one shelf you know two boxes of three shelves and one box of 20 shelves and so i talked to this this uh this 3pl and they said oh yeah we can just bind everything together we can just strap it all together I'm like, okay, that's great. And then you only pay like one fee and you know, you get a reduced cost and it's a lot easier. I'm like, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. So we ship all the stuff to it. By the time it gets to them, it's maybe a week before Black Friday. Uh, first couple of days go by and you start strapping stuff together and shipping it out. I'm like, wow, we're shipping it out very economically. This is amazing. And then they just stopped. They were just like, mm, this is taking too long. And they just shipped out everything individually. Without letting you know or? Well, they let me know and then didn't really do anything when I complained about it. I was like, hey, can you go back to doing that? Like, no can do. I'm like, this is going to be a problem. So I'm talking like each of these shelves, you know, at one shelf, I sell it to a customer for $2.50. They were shipping it out for $10 in shipping costs. And I had to pay for all the shipping costs. And so imagine this on the scale of tens of thousands. We shipped out 50,000 boxes. And then each day you see these numbers, just like like $10 out of your out of your 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 money pool, ten dollars, ten dollars, ten dollars, nonstop, and you're like, oh, I, this this can't keep up. Otherwise, I'm going to be bankrupt. Um, and so uh, I'm not even sure how I survived it, to be honest. Um, I think it's just because like we were able to make some compromises with some backers. You know, would be like, hey, is it okay if we ship you, you know, five black shelves instead of you know two yellow shelves and three black shelves? And it's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, we we're able to manage that a little bit better. But yeah, like the other issue as well, they wouldn't. Uh, ship it multi-label so that means that like they would be shipping out each product as its own shipment so and we had about 12 boxes per per order so like you're a customer and you're getting like stuff on all different days you get three three boxes on day one four boxes on day two two boxes on day four like it's just like it's crazy it's like a customer service nightmare and i didn't have any employees at that time so like, i was yeah. like handling all of this myself and all it was is it was wild time I was going to say, I feel like the the biggest the biggest issue might have been more on the, I guess you could swallow a lot of those issues as long as you can get the, I guess not involvement but like the sign off essentially from your customers that they they'll be okay for this kind of experience. So, what's your I guess advice there when you do kind of have 
chaos going on in the back in the back end of the business behind the scenes, uh, which can then spill out onto the customer experience. How do you kind of manage that with your customers? I mean, like first of all, like you should be giving people the best experience you can, right? So you need to try and solve the the problem in the first place, like however you can. So like in this warehouse situation, you know, like. I, yeah, I, I would try and find all the different kinds of compromises. Like, hey, like, can you strap two of these together? Can you do this? Can you take stuff out of the box? Can you do this? And so I was giving like, lots of different advice and trying to just uh, trying to just chip away at the problem. And I think that helped maybe a good chunk of the problem. Uh, on the customer service side, like, I think it, it, you just have to communicate with people. Like, people hate not hearing anything or being surprised. So you just have to tell people, give them a heads up. And most people are fine with it. Like most people are very level-headed. So you're like, oh, hey, this is actually going to happen. And they're like, okay, that's no problem. The biggest advice I could say is actually hiring a customer service person. Like that, is, that has changed my business, just hiring a customer service person. Like it gives me so much more time to focus on the actual product and the marketing side of stuff. Yeah, so nowadays, because of all those headaches from a highly customizable product, is your product still as customizable or have you made changes either in the product selection or the way that you do the supply chain to, uh, you know, give you less uh, gray hairs? Yeah, we had, we had to make a lot of changes uh, just because I didn't really trust the warehouse anymore, like the U.S. warehouse. So uh, instead of having, you know, everything in 12 different boxes, we basically pack, start packing stuff together. You know, we made stuff less customizable. So now it's like you can get all your frames in one color and all your shelves in another color. Um, and, uh, before we were packing like the bases and the columns and other stuff separately, uh, to, to make it a little bit easier to shit. And we changed that when I was, we would pack everything together. Like we could ship out, you know, three big boxes instead of 12 little ones now. And that's, that's made a big difference. Yeah, do you find that people are either not necessarily complaining, but are asking for a more custom, custom, I guess, um, to be able to customize their product more now that you've kind of reduced the almost like customized down to the shelves. Like you're talking about selling package, many different packages, but at least you have a control over the combination and permutation of them. Do you find that people care to have more control over their customization? Honestly, like not really. Like I feel like people don't really, uh, they don't really miss what they can't have. If, if you show them, like, this is what it's like, people won't complain about it. You know, they'll, they'll understand it on, on some level. Um, the only complaints I've had is that I had to discontinue some colors. So I had to discontinue, like, the, the yellow and the green because the numbers just weren't high enough for the, for the minimum order quantities. And so we had some people complaining about it. But I created a... Uh, uh, a Facebook group uh, called the Box Zone Design Council. Um, it was originally designed so that people can come and give their design ideas and stuff like that. Um, but in that group, it was kind of a marketplace too. So some point, someone would be like, "Hey, I'm looking for you know 12 green shelves," and someone would be like, "Okay, you know, I'll buy those from you and all this kind of stuff." So that's super cool to see like a little economy cop, uh, pop up over your your products. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point about how they don't miss what they, they don't have, but then also you kind of reduce that decision like fatigue that your customers have to make when they have to customize the entire thing. I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners think that the more personalization, more customization, the better, but a lot of times, you know, customers just want you to tell them, hey, what are what are the options, you know, and re to reduce the decisions for them, I think goes a long way. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly what I experienced too, like especially in the Kickstarter campaign. Like I think almost every customer was like, this is my space, what should I buy? Yeah, they're looking to you for the expertise, you know, so I think that as a business owner, you, sh you should feel comfortable and you should want to step up to tell them, hey, this is the best way to buy this product or this is the best option for you. So once you got those, um, got the products to those initial backers, what was next? Like how did you continue to drive new business, new customers to check out your product? What was working for you to go beyond the crowdfunding kind of um, uh, traffic source? Uh, like basically like I was seeing that the website, I had like kind of like a landing page up was just still getting a lot of hits. So we capital I capitalized it and made made the e-commerce store, right? I was always going to make a like make a Shopify store anyway. Um, so we made the Shopify store, but we like there were a lot of things that kind of like led to discovery of the product like we are first on google if you search for board game shelves or i think we're for, i think we're first as well you look for board game storage i actually own the the url boardgameshelf.com as well um mm. so i've done some like url stuff uh seo stuff to get to get high up um and so like we got a lot of discovery that way and at the same time 
people were starting to receive their products, right, from the Kickstarter. So people were putting up videos, and I was getting really good reviews. Like, I was, I was actually terrified for a while of, like, was I going to get bad reviews and this yeah. business is done? That's what I was so afraid of. And then I'll always remember the moment of, like, the very first email I got, and I'm like, oh, man, this is it. Oh, I'm so worried. Like, is this going to be a guy ripping into the product and calling me, you know, a scammer? I opened it up, and it was just a glowing review of everything. And you just had this massive detailed review on every little thing like oh i think you guys should you know add a couple centimeters over here i think it would help for this but everything else like he's like uh it's like very good blah blah blah. but it was just a great email just really gives a good confidence boost and from then on it was like just we did so many great reviews so i put a lot of them onto onto the website itself um and so uh so like that was a lot of momentum so it just it just carried over to the shopify store there was so many people waiting for it um, like on, on day one of the Shopify store, like we, we, we had a hundred thousand dollars in revenue on just the first day. Um, and I think that pushed us into like the top 1% of like Shopify launches or something like that. As I saw on the, on the, on the page, but, uh, it was, yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. There's just so, so much momentum behind it. Um, and then, yeah, so it was just about like continuing it and keeping building that community and offering new products and expanding to new regions. Like we have four different websites now, like, all for stormyboardgames.com, but it's like stormyboardgames.com or .co.uk and .com.au. We basically want to make people feel included. Um, uh, so we have like currencies that make sense. Like we don't have some kind of like janky currency conversion where it's like they have to pay, you know, 351 pounds and 57 cents. Like we have everything kind of like, it seems very uh, targeted towards like Europeans and Canadians and, and their market. So I feel like it gets people a bit more uh, excited and involved in the product too. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay. So you said a bunch of different things I want to dive into. So, um, the first one you mentioned, so it sounds like there's two sorts of traffic. One was the, um, the SEO that you did. And the second was just sound like, like a lot of word of mouth. Now the hundred thousand dollars in that first, you know, Shopify, like what was leading up to, like, what was the, was there a campaign leading up to the, the launch day? Like how did people know that this is day one, I'm going to go and buy, like where, where was the messaging or the marketing coming from that led to such a big, but kind of boost the traffic and sales in that first day. Yeah, like honestly, it was it was all word of mouth, right? It it was kind of the principle behind the product in the first place. I wanted to make something that uh, like people walk into their home and they notice and they start talking about it. And so you know you have this massive shelving system solving a problem that like a lot of people who are in the board game space kind of have. So like they would tell their friends, and then you know. Uh, I did Kickstarter updates telling people like, oh, if you're interested for the launch, go to this this page, this website. Uh, we had a little landing page on there, uh, and you'll be notified on launch. I built the hype up with the original Kickstarter backers, and I guess they were spreading spreading by word of mouth. Like I didn't do any Facebook ads before the launch, um, and also because it's an expandable system, right? So it was a year between uh, the end of the campaign and the launch of the store, so people had their collections had grown since then, right? And it was an expandable system. So they'd want to add onto the system and grow more and double the size of the system. And like most customers are like, not most, but we have a lot of returning customers because of that. I think it's like a 25% of my sales are from returning customers, just people expanding the system. So all that kind of added up. That definitely makes for a, a good business to have people coming back to buy add-ons essentially to, to your to your product. So when you, you mentioned that you want to, one of the things that you wanted to, to, to do, or at least that you've learned is that you want to create something that your customers can brag about to people in their peer groups. Now, obviously the, the product itself has to be, uh, I guess, brag worthy, right, to begin with. But are there things that you can do to encourage this? Features that you found that by adding into a product or messaging you can put out there that will encourage people to feel proud or to want to brag about your product to their friends? Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the key principle is just to make as high end as possible, right? Uh, like I always knew I wanted to make an expensive product because I didn't want to deal with the customer service nightmare of shipping out, you know, millions of $20 products to people. So like I, I knew I wanted to have a very expensive product that I would only ship out a few of. And so having that expensive product um, that you try and get like the highest quality you can, first of all, it's metal. There isn't a lot of metal shelves that look good in the world generally. Um, and the reason why I wanted metal is so that it could just hold a tremendous amount of weight. Like I've got photos of people with their box thrones, like 15 feet, 20 feet high. Like it's crazy. Um, 
because it's, it's all modular, right? So, and, and it holds all the weight perfectly. And so I just really wanted that like statement piece that was, uh, you know, it was like very high end. And so building up steel, you would allow you to build these huge systems. You can't ignore it when you walk in. Same uh, logic with the colors too. So, you know, people feel more attached to it because you're the personalized colors. Um, like one guy was big into Batman. So, you know, he like made his like old school Batman. So he made his like frames gray and the, uh, the shelves like light blue and, looked really good so people kind of feel like more attached to the product and they tell their friends about it um so yeah it's like yeah all the, all, the, all those things kind of lump into making it into a statement piece yeah okay so that that that, that covers the word of mouth how this product spread now when it came to seo you mentioned you bought a couple of domains that 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 uh, were specific to what you believe were search traffic for um for for, for your product what, 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 did you, what else did you do specifically SEO-wise that other people can take away to try to improve their rankings on Google? Uh, yeah, I think, I think hitting the Google image search is the most important, to be honest. Like, make sure you have all your alt tags on all, on all your images, like on, on your website. Um, like, on, on your Shopify store, make sure you have uh, just tons of photos of your products and have them all alt tagged. I feel like it actually makes a big difference. Um, and then at the same time, put those photos as well on Pinterest. Uh, Pinterest is like this strangely powerful hidden tool that I don't think a lot of people are using. Um, like even like I'm running like Pinterest ads right now and they've, they're like 10 times ROI on them. Um, and I do feel like it, when, you, when you do Google, Google image search, like a good 20% of the photos that show up are from Pinterest, um, at least for my product. Um, and so I think that that matters a lot in SEO. The rest of it, I think, is just is like a lot of like just traffic, right? And so just putting a lot of money into Facebook ads and social media ads. Got it. Okay, let's talk about that next. Social media ads and Facebook ads. Beyond Facebook, what else, where else do you advertise? Yeah, so like Facebook is my primary. And then I do ads on Pinterest as well because there's a lot of people looking for like apartment furniture. So it's just a very good crossover. Um, and then I used to, like during the campaigns, like Kickstarter campaigns, I used to or like advertise on uh, hobbyist websites like boardgamegeek.com but uh, during the it doesn't really have as much of a conversion for non-kickstarters so like for the Shopify store I only use uh, Facebook and Pinterest and the majority of it is, is Facebook also like Instagram right like you advertise on Facebook and it goes mm -hmm. to Instagram as well can you say more about your strategy on Facebook how do you set up your ads and, and how do you do the targeting on, on, on Facebook to drive traffic uh, that will convert to your your, your website yeah, I mean, like the key principle of my website is that I have to actually have uh, pre-order cycles, right? So like every month, uh, it's one month now, it used to be two months. Uh, it's almost like a mini Kickstarter campaign on the Shopify store. So I have a big countdown bar and it's like, you only got 30 days left to buy this. Uh, and then when it goes down to zero, that's when I, you know, I export all the orders to the factory and ship stuff out. Um, and so it has that uh, fear of missing out aspect on it. So I think that drives a lot mm. of the conversions. Um, and I use that a lot in the language as well as the Facebook ads. So it's like, oh, like use your last chance scan to Wave 7 and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the main reason why I have that Wave pre-order system is because it's the storage fees for this stuff is, is, is huge because it's giant furniture, right? So I wouldn't be able to store just just tons and tons of it. Uh, that said, like I'm looking to ways to, to make it better. Like we're, we're trying to reduce our shipping times. I think we're, we should be able to get them down by a half and stuff by in a few months. But, but yeah, so it's so like playing into that, that um, urgency. Uh, cycle. Yes, I'm on there right now. It says 19 days left for at least for this product if you get your pre-orders in. And you mentioned that you're doing this because of the really the constraints on, on the, the the fulfillment side. Um, but it sounds like it's working a lot really well too on the marketing side to drive that urgency, getting people to get in. Do you see like a big uptick when it gets down to like the last couple of days? Yeah, uh, I mean like 80% of the sales actually happen. So like we used to have these like two month uh, pre-order windows, and 80% of the sales happened in the last two weeks. Uh, now I've shortened it to one month, and it happens about in the last week. Mm -hmm. So yeah, eighty percent is like just at the end, basically. And all the marketing when it comes to Facebook ads is about getting in before the pre-order closes. Yeah, like this one side of the marketing where it's telling people like this is the world's first uh, made for uh, board games shelving system. You know, the, the first completely modular metallic adjustable system. Uh, and then we hit them with like, oh, it's like now's the last chance to do it. Uh, and yeah, so like it, I, I find it's a win-win for everyone really, um, because yeah. people, people want to get into the way before it ends. Cause like we don't set it up in a way that 
we do it just to funnel people into the website. It's like we, we have to do it like that. Just like from the financial constraints of it. Yeah, you have a real reason to have this uh, this urgency. So you so you mentioned that you have two types of messaging. One is almost like education around the first maybe the first time they've ever seen your product before, and then the the kind of countdown where you only have nineteen days or two or three or one day left before pre orders close. Is that like a retargeting ad, or do you still send that to kind of like I guess top of your funnel? Uh, like the thing with the retargeting is that I find that it isn't as effective for this product because people who are interested in it will uh, go away and they'll measure their house and all this kind of stuff. You know, they'll go away and look at it. And I think that it's top of mind for them enough. And they're kind of always thinking about like, once you see that countdown timer and you're like, I'm interested in this product, you'll always be thinking about it. So you'd be like, oh, like, uh, it's only 10 days left to do this. Like, will this fit? And then, you know, two days later, you go back and look at the store and you're like, oh, there's, there's only eight days left now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that the retargeting actually, it, it's, it's, quite pointless to do it um mm-hmm. so i actually hit the top of the funnel like the hardest Got okay so are you sending like on a given ad that someone might see or do they see the kind of messaging around you know the first product of its kind and kind of introducing your product and then also the urgency or the urgency comes like later no it's all at once it's like here's the product okay. you have a last chance just do it um i guess it's like a, a my funnel isn't that deep actually to be honest it's like it's spread quite wide and maybe it's one thing i can improve but um, I feel like a lot of people, when they do this, uh, some of the marketing is actually built into some of the email communications. So, like, they'll go on there, add a product to see what the, the how much the shipping is, and then they'll get like a really cute sh- uh, abandoned cart email. You know, it's all in the, in the theme. Like, oh no, Your Majesty, you've left the Box King alone in the wilderness. <laughs> Are you going to save him? There's wolves out there, you know. And it kind of like drags people in a little bit, and they go back and. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my strategy for it. Yeah, I was going to ask next. So like, when it comes to your marketing, when it comes to rather marketing to uh, to um, existing customers, you mentioned you said twenty five percent of your 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 sales come from returning customers. Is there marketing that drives them back to purchase? You know, uh, expansions to to the modular system, or, or what are ways for you to get a twenty five percent returning customer rate? Yeah, it's a lot of that's emails, right? Because uh, I have. Uh, I basically always ask people to sign up for, for, for the email list, like pretty much everywhere, all over the website. And so once they're in there, uh, you know, I don't really send that many emails. I send them like one every two months. So it's really not that often. And usually when I have those emails, I have some good news into it. Like I, know, I don't really sell it, send like, like marketing emails like, hey, now's the last chance to buy this. I usually have some kind of news about the product or upcoming products or the company. So I'm like, hey, we just added this thing to the store, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so people are always kind of interested to open up the, the, the emails. And uh, and that's almost all like returning customers, right? Um, so yeah, just, just just making sure people who have bought your product are engaged by email. Now talk a little bit about the tools that you use. So you you mentioned uh, CrowdOx, first of all, as a, as a tool that you use after crowdfunding. What about email or any other tools that you use on your on, or, or apps even that you use on your site to run the business? Uh, yeah, so I use uh, MailChimp uh, right now, but I think I'm going to swap over to Squarespace email. It's a little bit cheaper. Um, or even Shopify email, if, if that's pretty cheap too. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm dabbling between those, but honestly, it's only... Outside of Shopify apps, pretty much all I use is just like MailChimp and Google Calendar and, you know, just the G Suite. That's basically it. What about the, the apps that you use on your website? What are some of those that you recommend? Yeah, so the biggest difference is, is Wheelio, the spin to win. Like when I implemented that, I had probably like a 20% uptick in sales. Uh, I know I've heard that before as well on the show as well. It wasn't a 20% uptick sustained, but it was 20% at the time. And then now I, I'm, it's about like... Like my store is always growing, so you know I feel like it is part of the growth. Uh, just because about fifty percent of customers have used those spin to win Wheelio uh, coupon codes, um, and my email list is like blowing up. You know, I get like a few hundred emails signed up uh, like every every week. So uh, so yeah. Got it. So the the email you get, you collect them through the spin to win uh, Wheelio. Uh, basically, in exchange for their email address, you give a discount code or some kind of prize to to the to the prospective customer. And you mentioned you only send out emails like once every couple of months. Do you send out different emails for people that have joined your list through Wheelio versus other ways that they've joined your list? Uh, yeah. So like from so I send one email out every two months. Uh, and the way I have my auto email, like I have a 
like I do, I do have a sales funnel in the way that I have uh, like auto emails going out to new new people who sign up. So if you sign up, you'll get an email kind of explaining more about Boxinar, and then you'll get another one, you know, urging people to 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 buy before the end of the wave. Um, but then that's it. And then from then on, it's only like the, the news emails. And so uh, most of the people who sign up, like one of the one of the criticisms I've heard about those spin to win apps is that all the emails are just are just junk uh, that you get from there. Uh, because you, you, you're giving away uh, discounts on the product uh, as prizes. So a lot of people just sign up just to get the, to get the prize. But uh, if you have like a good email system, email funnel set up, those people are going to unsubscribe, like make it very easy for them to unsubscribe on that first email they get. And so this, so you're going you're gonna to shed all the fat anyway. I think that's part of why I have such a pretty strong email following. What do you send typically in that flow? What kind of emails are you sending? What kind of messaging do you send them? So the first one is basically an educational email, talking, telling them like, hey, like uh, this is like the box zone. These are things you can do with it. These are the add-ons that we have for it. Uh, and then the next one is just about uh, like, hey, this is how the system works. Like in, in we ship out every two months because of these reasons. Uh, chances are there aren't many days left uh, in your wave right now. You should should jump aboard. So just have those two. Don't send too many out. Got it. Box Throne, which is at storemyboardgames.com. I'll leave you with this final question. What do you think is the biggest challenge for you as a business or for you to overcome this year? Uh, well, I'm launching two more products this year, actually. It's not uh, related to the board game shelf, but like I mentioned, it's, it's kind of part of the Box Throne universe. Uh, one is like a, it's basically like a token storage system uh, that it's, it's just incredibly complicated uh, for me to explain it, but it's, it's basically like modular and you can shift into all these different forms. And we have these like art plates made by famous board game artists. And so, uh, I, I've got to, got to sustain the momentum with that while sustaining box zone. And then I'm also launching a third product later as well. And so I really wanted to tie all together, you know, like I want to have these, I want everyone to feel like it's one big universe. So I'm going to have these mascots for each of the products and, and keep that going. Super cool. So very exciting. If, if anyone wants to follow along, they can probably just join your email list at, again, storemyboardgames.com. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Dan. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.